0: On December 2nd of 2018, I preached the first message in the Gospel of Luke series, and it's been a while, hasn't it? We're we're coming up to um, kind of the seventh inning stretch uh, of this walk through the Gospel of Luke, and we're not going to sing Buy Me Some Peanuts and Cracker Jack this morning, but we are going to consider uh, what it was at the very beginning of our study that was our intent, the desire what we were looking for in this study. Here's what, I, here's what I, said. I've got it up on the screen here. I want to sit, speaking of myself in particular and us as a church, I want to sit at His feet, Jesus' feet, like Mary, soaking in His teaching and resting in His presence. I want to grow to live for God in single-hearted devotion like He did I want to care for the lost and the sinner and the outcast like he did and does. I want to keep from being a hypocrite and a Pharisee and a man who loves money or sex or power more than him. I want to truly renounce all that I have and increasingly see him as my all in all, and I could continue. There is so much here in this gospel to see and consider, and it is on account of my desires by the grace of God to grow in my love for the Savior and grow in the ability to mature and multiply disciples, to see Jesus and know Jesus and love Jesus that I want to take the time to go through this gospel. I want to, and I want this church to, grow to love sitting at Jesus' feet to learn from Him, to have Him as our heart's first and largest love, to sit at His feet and love Him so very much that the love of money and the love of men's praise and any concerns of today and tomorrow would flee, that we would be a people who are real and authentic, repentant and believing in this great Savior, humble and not playing the game of church or religion, not fritter our lives away with things that simply will not last, nor give the joy for which we so greatly long. Uh, Man, providentially, Josh, you standing here just as I was reading this, I was like, thank you, Lord. Those desires haven't changed. We know that God is doing 10,000 things that we don't see. How how many of us knew that God was doing anything in Josh? Uh, Raise your hand. Yeah, like three people. Well, I, I'll raise my hand too. four or five. So There's not, not, many, not many of us. Listen, God is doing far more than what we would ever ask or imagine. We might not see it all the time, be aware, but God is always, always active. He is building his kingdom. And so, like Dan said, expectation rises because the king is on his throne. May the Lord open our eyes and our hearts to know him and to love him as we continue in our study for these next four months. Um, Ten chapters ago, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke states this He says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from that point on, we entered what's called the travel narrative. We've considered so far many of the things that Jesus taught and did along the path to Jerusalem. We've covered a ton. We've heard the Good Samaritan story, the story of Martha and Mary. We've been taught the Lord's Prayer, seen numerous people healed and set free. We've heard Jesus rebuke those who would cling to self-righteousness and nationalistic religion. We've considered parables of the rich fool, the fig tree, the wedding feast, the great banquet, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son the dishonest manager, the rich man and Lazarus, the persistent widow, the Pharisee and the tax collector. We've met the rich young ruler. We've met the ten lepers, and the one leper particularly, and we've met the little children. We've met the blind beggar, and we just met last week a man named Zacchaeus. We've been taught what the cost of discipleship is, and we've been exhorted to be ready for the imminent return of Jesus all the way along, hearing Jesus speak and preach about the kingdom of God, to repent and believe in Him. And today we find ourselves 10 chapters into this journey towards Jerusalem, a journey that we know will take him ultimately to the cross where he will as it says in uh, last week's te- or two weeks ago, be de- uh, he will be delivered over to the gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. Now what we come to this morning is another parable, a simple story that teaches a lesson. And what I would like to do this morning is to make some observations about this parable that precedes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that we'll look at in just a short, few short weeks, where he enters into Jerusalem as king. He's been on his way to Jerusalem as king, but he's entering Jerusalem as king. And people would cry out in that passage in verse 38 of Luke 19, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, first observation right off the bat, uh, this parable is not Matthew's parable. Now, this is going to be worth, um, if if you're not taking notes, um, worth taking a few notes on because where I'm going this morning is going against a lot of commentators and going against a lot of preachers I love. Um, And so I shake a little bit at that. But… This parable is not Matthew's parable, as far as I'm concerned. We, we must work hard at keeping our head in this context of Luke and considering what is it that Luke is writing about, not what Matthew's writing about, what Luke is writing about. What is he striving? What has he been striving? What is he going to continue to strive to communicate by telling these specific stories out of all that Jesus had said and accomplished? And of course, we must always do this when we're reading God's Word. I've called that in the past vertical reading, where we consider what it is that God is teaching through that author, not, not necessarily just through biblical, like the, the broad spectrum of biblical authors, that, that we would call horizontal reading, but, but vertical reading is what is God telling us through Luke? We, we've considered, uh, and we will consider a little bit here, the story in Matthew. And, and we've considered other stories that are very similar to, to the stories that we read in Luke by looking at, at Matthew or Mark, and, and very little do we see similar stories in John. But, but we, we go after those two, and that's that horizontal reading, to see if there's any connections that can be made horizontally. And so I want to consider for a moment what many believe to be the horizontal reading of this portion of Luke. So the way that you may have come in thinking about this, and you may leave also saying, you know, Steve, um, not true what you're talking about. And I want to say right off the bat, always, every single week, this church needs to be like the Bereans, who test what they hear against the Word of God to see if it's true. Just because I'm speaking it, I mean, hopefully you've learned to trust what I say, but but I'm just a guy who the Lord has called to preach, but you need to be testing what I say to see if it's true. In each of our Bibles, we'll more than likely find the header of this section called the parable of the ten minas. And if we were to cross, or use, use our cross-references at all in our Bibles, we would more than likely find the horizontal reading in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, a similar parable called the parable of the talents, the parable of the minas, parable of the talents. Seems, it sounds very similar in a lot of ways. In Matthew, this parable of the talents occurs in that context, um, in the context of four other parables delivered after Jesus had entered Jerusalem, not before on the Mount of Olives as part of Jesus' discourse on the difficulties of the days ahead, both that some of them would experience in A.D. 70 and some at the end of the ages. Uh, all the descriptions of these parables relate with clarity in Matthew 25 to final judgment. So it's, it's, it's what Matthew's… Ta- it's what Jesus is talking about. It's what Matthew is wanting to make known in that… Uh, section. So, Matthew's parable serves as a kind of warning about a disciples' conduct while awaiting the coming of Christ, followed by an illustration of swift judgment for those who reject Jesus' sovereignty. And the Master returns only after a long time, and the wicked, lazy servant not only has his talent taken away, but is cast outside into the darkness where there will be gnashing of teeth, a judgment that Matthew speaks of in chapters 8, 13, 22, and 24. That's Matthew. Now, Luke, the parable is given while Jesus is still in the house of Zacchaeus in Jericho prior to His entrance into Jerusalem nor does it include any statement on the delayed return of the nobleman. The the parable in Luke ascribes the the crowd's anticipation that the physical reign of God is about to appear to, to overturn the Romans, to the fact that Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. So they've been They've been hearing this over and over again, and Luke's Luke's hearers in those days are hearing, okay, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. What's he doing on his way to Jerusalem? Well, he's going to enter into his kingdom, even though he's saying the kingdom just a handful of weeks ago, the kingdom is among you. In the immediate context of this parable, there's just this kind of incessant communication about Jesus' drawing near to Jerusalem, which indicated to everyone around them, here we go, here we go, Jesus is going to get going here, going to destroy the Romans. And so he says this in verse 11, Um, he he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear And then in chapter 19, verse 28, says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And then verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And then verse 41 says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. There's all this drawing near language. And you'll remember that Jesus has been most recently recognized by the blind man at the entrance to Jericho as as who? The son of David, the Messiah, the the King. It was a clear statement that Jesus was who He was saying He was the coming King, the the Messiah, and it certainly would have heightened the political expectations that were already prevalent among the crowd that was following Him. These followers of Jesus in this day were still looking for Jesus to start His kingdom through some sort of political power that would usurp the role and authority of Rome. Even in the last chapter of the gospel, we come to the story of Jesus talking with two men on the road to Emmaus who hadn't heard uh, that Jesus had risen again, much less realizing that they were actually talking to him. And here's what they said. They said, but, this is chapter 24, verse 21a, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he, we thought he was going to beat the Romans. We thought that's what his kingdom was. I know he's dead even though they were talking to him. And then, if you just think for a moment, the disciples in Acts chapter 1, what is the question that they ask? I don't have this up on the screen, but they ask something along the lines of, okay, Jesus, is it, is it now when you're going to return Israel to its glory? There was a kind of excitement in the air and, and in, in the text that we're in Not not just because, I mean, Zacchaeus, they were probably somewhat confused by. We're not confused by Zacchaeus. We look and see the work of God in this man's life. Amazing. But they were They were more anticipating, Jesus, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's get to Jerusalem because there you're going to start your kingdom and there you're going to destroy the Romans and there all this is going to happen. There was excitement in the air. People were assuming that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, right? Then in the way that they anticipated. We'd we'd be right to imagine that people would be looking through a kingdom lens that they were used to seeing. They had only seen... In their lifetime, the lens of government that is the Roman rule. Now, their king would ruthlessly and righteously and definitively take over. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. He's going to take over like a zealot, like the zealot of zealots, the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to bring. Um, uh, victory over Roman rule. They, they could not wait. But, but remember again what Jesus stated just a few weeks ago, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, there for, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Um, So here in this portion of Luke's writing, we're seeing increasingly an emphasis on Him entering Jerusalem and doing so as the Messiah, as King, but not in the way that people are presuming even at this point. Even though Jesus has made it crystal clear over this whole travel narrative, it wasn't going to look like they were anticipating. The disciples have heard Him say He's going to suffer and He's going to die. This is no King that does that. And so their whole paradigm was squashed, blown up. They're, they're like, ooh, well, I, like that can't, that can't be. Jesus is talking nonsense. I don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus says, I'm going, to the, I'm going to Jerusalem. I am the king. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. Everyone fully expects that Jesus is going to form his kingdom and free the people of Israel from Rome. Now, like I just mentioned, although many would take a different approach to this text and read Matthew's parable of the talents into this parable, which… which is, on the one hand, very similar. In this context in Luke, I believe it's not meant to inform how we're to live as we wait for His appearing, using what we've been given for the glory of God, but rather as told to correct any notion that the reign of God is to appear as a political institution like the Roman Empire. It seems, doesn't it, that the crowd has assumed and continues to assume to this point that God's reign is going to shortly take on an earthly demonstration after the earthly kings and kingdoms. It seems like it to me that that's their that's their intention. And so, if we were to enumerate the differences between the parable of the talents in Matthew and this parable, we will find many similarities, but we will find more differences whether it's the timing and location of the parable, or the different surrounding context of both parables, or the varying details regarding the number of servants or the amounts given or the recompense later, or any number of other details. In my estimation, this parable is not primarily about talents, or minas, or the end of the age, or uh, of faithfulness in disciples as we await the return of the King, as the similar parable in Matthew is. Jesus and Luke here in Jericho on the way to Jerusalem are making, I believe, an entirely different point. It, it seems to me that to read Matthew's parable into this parable it is a mistake. Certainly, it's very similar, and Matthew's parable is rich, and it is meaningful, and absolutely worthy of our attention, but we're not in Matthew. We're in Luke. What is it that Luke is saying? It seems that not only the context of the parable is entirely different, but Luke's purpose is different than Matthew's, and we must simply let Luke do the talking primarily and consider the vertical reading as priority. Now, I pray we'll see this more clearly as the next couple of observations come our way. Second observation. So, first observation. I, I believe the parable that we come to is not Matthew's parable. It's 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 Luke's, and there's a different purpose. The nobleman is not Jesus. That's my second observation. Um, in this parable, we're introduced to a certain nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now many make the case that the nobleman is in fact Jesus. And on one hand, I feel like, well, who am I to come against or to say something different than John Piper or to say something different? I don't, I don't know what John MacArthur says, but to, say, to come, I just don't see it. I see some of the connections, but I don't see it entirely. Um, I, I think most commentators make that a key point, that the nobleman is Jesus, and then they try to work through the difficulties that that presents in the story. In fact, if one states that Jesus is the nobleman in the story, there is what scholars have considered one of the hardest sayings of Jesus at the end of the text, and they're not entirely sure what to do with it. Specifically. That the Jesus who come, who has come to seek and to save the lost, compassionate and merciful, everything that we've been seeing in Luke, all of a sudden calls for his enemies to be brought before him and slaughtered before his eyes. And while I do believe in the eternal, conscious, just punishment of all who reject the person and kingship of Jesus on that final day, I don't believe that this specific parable speaks of that. So, please don't hear me say that there is not punishment in the end, in eternal punishment. I, I think if you've been with me through this Gospel of Luke, you know that I believe that. Jesus believed it and taught it, and, and so I fully embrace that, and I'm grieved by it. Just stick with me for a moment here. The, these things are going to seem nitpicky, but I believe that who we believe the nobleman to be is of utmost importance in understanding the parable. Now, I don't believe the nobleman is Jesus because the term noble is a perverted earthly title that was specifically given to certain Romans. The people at the time knew this. So, we think noble, and we're like, ah, it's great. Jesus is noble. He is the noblest out of all people. Well, in this case, when they think noble, they're thinking a nobleman in Rome, uh, somebody powerful. Consider the words of Paul for a moment to the Corinthian church in Greece where he says this to the Christians. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of what? Noble birth. Now, now Jesus, again, was certainly the most noble of all people of all time, but in earthly terms, Jesus was born in exceedingly humble conditions in Bethlehem. He was derided as being Jesus of Nazareth, not a nobleman. Now, I don't believe Jesus is the nobleman because the nobleman also goes to a faraway land to acquire his royal power, but Jesus does not go anywhere to acquire his royal power. Rather, he is born Messiah. He's born a king. He's been given a kingdom, as it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 29, and he passes that off to us as his followers. Now, I don't believe Jesus is the nobleman also because the nobleman is hated by his citizens who who actually send an embassy to thwart his attempt to gain royal power, but Jesus is both welcomed in Jerusalem, just a couple of weeks, um, and the people don't send a delegation to heaven, which is, if you were to equate the faraway land with heaven, there's no delegation going to heaven to communicate their disdain or disapproval of him. You'd have to allegorize a lot in this text. Which sometimes is appropriate in this case, I don't think you have to. Another thought is that the newly anointed king in this parable distributes cities to those whom he left in charge, and history, real history, follows that reality. Many, uh, again, allegorize the distribution of cities as a spiritual symbol of greater responsibility or treasures in heaven. Matthew does something similar with that concerning talents, but this, in this case, Minas and cities. One, one can only get there through some sort of significant allegorizing and, and, again, reading Matthew's parable into Luke's parable. And I just think, can't do that. In my estimation, the reward of cities is actually cities to all those who serve this nobleman as they were supposed to do, we'll consider more of that in just a moment. One more reason to consider that the nobleman is not Jesus. The servant, uh, the last servant, believes the nobleman to be a harsh, severe man. And the imagery of a severe man in verse 21 is, is that of a tough, uncompromising, punctilious financier. At best, the way that you would describe the Matthew 25 passage, it says something similar, is that this man is thinking wrongly about God. That is the best case But I believe in this case, in this specific parable in Luke, that this servant's picture of the king as a severe man is not some mistaken exaggeration of a bitter slave, but is actually evidence to be true when he ends up slaughtering a bunch of people right in front of them. Consider Myanmar or North Korea, and the kind of slaughter that happens there to anyone who dares say anything against the leadership. This kind of bloodlust characterizes the world's tyrants, not Jesus. And in fact, He is the one, all the way through Luke, we've seen, we've seen this. I mean, and just recently we've seen mercy and compassion, mercy. I came to seek and to save the lost, and over and over and over again, this, this kind of bloodlust characterizes the world's tyrants, not Jesus. He, he is the one, in fact, who we will see is slaughtered Himself. slaughtered on our behalf. And He asked the Father to forgive the ones who killed Him. His kingdom is like none other. I think that's the point. So in this story, in Luke 19, the tyrant can only slaughter his enemies, just wipe them out, kill them destroy them. He has no authority whatsoever to cast him into eternal outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, like Matthew's parable speaks about Jesus, speaks about what Jesus does on the day of judgment. I don't think that we're talking about final judgment in this point. It seems to me that this nobleman in this parable in Luke is a pitiless tyrant who strips a servant of his mina, leaving him destitute, and then turns to slaughter all those who opposed his rule right before his eyes. And again, in context to all that Luke has been communicating in an orderly fashion to Theophilus about the significant compassion and mercy of King Jesus, who seeks and saves the sick and the lost, and the desperate and the fearful, and the broken and outcast, and welcomes them into his kingdom. The tyranny of this nobleman, in my opinion, just does not fit the context Consider that the disciples, just a short while ago, wanted to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan town that had rejected Jesus. This was the kind of kingdom that they had visioned, but Jesus rebuked them and moved on to another village. Slaughter is not what Jesus does. Certainly, it's what Rome does, and that what they will do for years to come, culminating in A.D. 70, Have you've ever read about what happens in A.D. 70, slaughtering should have come faster brutal, brutal Roman oppression. The king of the kingdom of God is unlike earthly tyrants who have armies that bring vengeance, that bring trampling, that bring desolation. And and, and we'll read in chapter 22 that Jesus contrasts himself with the kings of the Gentiles. They, he says, exercise lordship over them. But Jesus comes as the one who serves and gives himself as a ransom for many. Jesus' kingship is humble. He gives his life for others. He dies forgiving his enemies the king of this kingdom comes to seek and to save the lost. This is, again, what Jesus has been teaching over and over and over and over again. No other kingdom and no other king is like this. And yet the first question, after Zacchaeus is born again, you're going to enter your kingdom? We're going to destroy Rome now, right? Right? Third observation. Jesus' reign does not mirror worldly kingdoms. Remember that those who are listening to Jesus tell this story, those who are in the house of Zacchaeus would be most definitely connecting details in this parable from past events in their history. And they're real, real people, with real stories. They were not coming at this with a blank slate, needing somehow to allegorize things to try to make sense of it. The historian Josephus writes of two men named Hyrcanus and Aristobulus who fought for royal power that includes all of the intrigue you might imagine, all the brutality, all the murders, even the promise of giving cities to faithful allies. In fact, listen to what Josephus said about these two men. This, is, this would have been prior to it was like the days of Zacchaeus, the days of Jesus. It says, now the occasions of this misery, this is Josephus, the historian, now the occasions of this misery which came upon Jerusalem were Hyrcanus and Aristobulus by raising a sedition one against the other. For now, because of them, we lost our liberty. And we became subject to the Romans and were deprived of that country which we had gained by our arms from the Syrians and were compelled to restore it to the Syrians. Moreover, the Romans exacted of us in a little time above 10,000 talents, just a ton of money, and the royal authority, which was a dignity formerly bestowed on those who were high priests by the right of their family, became the property of private men. They became slaves. Now, the people knew of this kind of wicked, man-centered kingdom that actually cost them their freedom. This was not unknown to them. But it doesn't cease with these two men. The people were also very, very familiar with the recent history of King Herod's sons. And you can read all about it in Josephus' Antiquities with the Jews in book 17. And I encourage you to read Josephus at sometimes, when you're interested in the history. It's, it's, it's fascinating. When King Herod died, he left his kingdom to three surviving sons. There was Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. We're familiar specifically with Antipas and Philip, but Archelaus was another one. Herod could not make that decision just on his own. This is a little bit of history that I think speaks into why why I landed at where I landed. So Herod couldn't do it on his own. It had to be approved by Roman officials. So one of the sons, that is Archelaus, traveled to a faraway country, Rome, to gain the support of the emperor at the time. That is Augustus. Caesar. Well, what happened was that the Judeans revolted and sent an embassy to support—I mean, they, they hated Archelaus. Archelaus was, was an enemy. They hated him. So they revolted, and they sent this embassy to oppose his appointment of the kingdom because of his brutality. And in fact, they were, they, they were in so much hatred that they killed a number of soldiers in the process of their um, revolt. And Archelaus, in retribution, slaughtered over 3,000 of them. Now Josephus also gives an account that before Archelaus traveled to receive his kingdom from Rome, which is why he went to Rome, he entrusted his house and belongings to his officers, so that when he returned, having received his kingdom from Caesar, things would have been protected for him, even expanded. And when he returned, well, what the encyclopedia states, Archelaus ruled with a strong hand, suppressing the rebellious elements in the country with the utmost cruelty and and brutality. He replaced the high priest Joser by his brother Eleazar, who in turn was supplanted by Joshua, son of Seth. He inherited his father's passion for building and erected the city of Archelaus near Jericho and built a new palace in Jericho in place of that destroyed during the disturbances. Now the reason I mention all this to you is that you might imagine that the people of Zacchaeus' house in Jericho knew all about this story. Their parents, most likely, or grandparents, had endured the brutal rule of Archelaus. The palace in Jericho still sitting there. They're very, very aware of what Jesus is speaking of, in my estimation. Now in light of all that recent history, in that specific location, And in light of the context of this emphasis on Jesus nearing Jerusalem and the expectation of the reign of the Messiah in the kingdom, uh, oh, so very imminent among the people, I just believe that it seems clear that Jesus is making a specific point about his kingship and his kingdom that stands in precise opposition to all that they know, all that's familiar to them, and the very things that they expect his kingdom to be. God's reign does not mirror the way the kingdoms of the world operate, either then or today. The world's kingdoms operate on political infighting. They, they operate on military power and the subduing or destruction of enemies. The rulers of the kingdoms, the world's kingdoms, lust to rule, and they wreak vengeance on those who resist their will. We know that's the case. We see it ourselves now. It's always been the same. the way of the kings of this world to go war against other kings, or one party to fight the other party, or to seek more status, or more power, or more land, or more taxes. And those who resist those kings, um, they bear the brunt of their tyrannical wrath. The kings of the world have their minions who perform well and get their share of reward, but their power is limited and very temporary. But Jesus would have us know, whether we are in Zacchaeus' home or in Belbrook, Ohio, that that kind of kingdom and that that kind of king, that kind of power its not real power. It has nothing to do with the kingdom that he's part of, and not just part of, but that he's king of. Real power belongs to the true king, the one who brings peace the one who does dole out justice at the right time, the one who does show compassion and mercy and love even to his enemies, even to the point of death on a cross. The the kingdom of God has an entirely different strategy than the kingdoms of this world, then and today. Now let me bring this to conclusion. Craig Evans um, states in his book entitled The Bible Knowledge Background Commentary of Matthew through Luke says this, this parable was applied to principles of stewardship in the life of the church when it became separated from its original social and economic context and when memory of Archelaus had faded. I, I think that's true. Perhaps you, like me, have only read this parable in the past through the lens of Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. And again, like I've said, many commentators and pastors would be in agreement. But In my estimation, this parable serves not to inform disciples of Jesus how to live while waiting for the return of Jesus at the end of time, but rather to contrast an evil tyrant king who is hated by his people and wants to see his opponents slaughtered in his presence with King Jesus. Altogether different. A compassionate Savior who's who's going to just in a few short verses weep over Jerusalem, not slaughter them. Give his life to be slaughtered in their place. This is the heart of Jesus and his kingdom. Two entirely different kinds of kings. Two entirely different kinds of kingdoms. And before Jesus leaves Jericho, as he rises up into the hill, uh, out of Zacchaeus' house and up to Jerusalem, upon hearing once again the question about his kingdom from the people around him, he gives this parable to communicate yet again that his kingdom is not like them not like that. And honestly, I believe the Spirit is challenging the church today with the same truth. The temptation um, remains the same today as it did on that day in Zacchaeus' home. We want Jesus' kingdom to overturn the kingdoms of this world in some sort of political manifestation. Church history reveals that Christians… Have had a hard time understanding that God does not win over the opposition through violence and through domination, through political prowess or control. Followers of Christ still get it wrong this very day, even in our own country, and conflate the kingdom of God with the kingdom of America. But Jesus will have none of it. His kingdom is like none other, period. And the crowd was ready to fight. The, the, uh, Peter in the garden, ready to fight immediately. The church throughout history, ready to fight and kill a bunch of people. Anybody who's an enemy of God, to wipe them out. They don't need to hear the gospel. The church today, ready to fight. And Jesus says to all, That is the way of the kingdoms of this world, but my kingdom does not look like that. My kingship is not like that. Jesus did not come to ultimately, first and foremost, to change government structures or or to bring revolution of a political sort. He came to seek and to save the lost and to revolutionize the hearts of all who would trust him, causing them to live under his rule in this reign where love for God and love for man highlight all we do, where through love of God and love of man as regenerated, born-again, selfless followers of Christ would become so prevalent that governments would be led by God people, not, not ungodly people who are trying to, we're trying to make them make moral decisions. We need a change of heart, and that change of heart has to start here. Let me ask you, as you live, as you respond to the latest thing you disagree with in culture or government, which kingdom does your response resemble? As Jesus departs Jericho and heads up to Jerusalem, he reminds the people that his kingdom is not of this world, and he will communicate that in just over a week's time in this Gospel of Luke to Pilate with specificity. He says this in, John, in, in actually in John chapter 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, "Are you the King of the Jews?" And Jesus answered, "Well, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me?" Pilate said, "Well, am I a Jew?" Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom, not from the world. Friends, for the people in our text, Jesus told this parable to contrast himself and his rule with the rulers of the world. All that they had known and he ascends the hill to Jerusalem as Messiah King. And he does so not to quell their excitement or to somehow manage their expectations, but to totally realign their excitement, to realign their expectations, to realign their hopes and their dreams and their very lives, to move their sights off of this re-establishment of national Israel or any other nation and retrain onto his kingdom that revolutionizes hearts, that redeems people from their sin, that frees people from the imprisoned soul, that opens blind eyes, welcomes the outcast not simply into the kingdom but makes us heirs of the kingdom. What kingdom, friends, excites your passions in this day? In the last verse of our text this morning, Luke simply states this, when he had said these things he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Doesn't explain himself, doesn't, just leaves. He went on ahead as the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God, King of Kings, and the Lord of lords to suffer in His people's place, to die in our place, to rise again victorious over not some government but the very enemies of our souls, death, sin, and Satan, freeing His people to live for Him as the king of their hearts, and that kingdom continues to grow and it will know no end. Philip Yancey writes in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he says, God's kingdom has no geographical borders, no capital city, no parliament building, no royal trappings that you can see. Its followers live right among their enemies, not separated from them by a border fence or a wall. This was way before the border fence. It lives and grows on the inside of humans. At the very beginning of this gospel account of Luke, what do we see but Gabriel telling um, Mary this, he, that is Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And what we've seen through Jesus' entire ministry is he's been preaching the kingdom of God and healing people and delivering people and forgiving people to prove that he wasn't vying for a kingdom, but that his eternal kingdom had come. He came as king. He ministered as king. He climbed up the hill of Jerusalem as king. He entered Jerusalem as king. He was arrested as king. He was tried as king. And he died as king. And he rose again as king. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father as king. And he will return one day as king. This is our Jesus. This is good news. This is what people are missing. We we're 2,000 years later still missing it. May we not miss it. His kingdom is like none other. So clear was this, that the Jewish leaders themselves again would bring Jesus to Pilate with the charge that he claims to be a king, and Pilate is absolutely confused. Pilate only knew the kind of kingship and kingdoms that had to do with power politics and military strategy. He found the charge that Jesus was a king to be ridiculous, as did Herod Antipas, the one of the other three brothers who had a third of the kingdom. In their eyes, Jesus was no king. Jesus had no army. He put up no resistance. And what Pilate, nor Herod, nor even the disciples in Zacchaeus' house or as Jesus entered Jerusalem or hung on the cross and was buried could fathom was that Jesus' kingdom is not like other kingdoms they're used to. His kingdom is in the world and continues to spread across the world, but it is not of the world. It does not look like anything of the kingdoms of this world vying for power and control and dominance. So I ask a question again, which kingdom has your allegiance? Is it your kingdom, your own little private kingdom? Is it this country? You see, there is a way to seek change in a culture, but it is primarily As far as I'm concerned, through heart change, through prayer, prayer, through peaceful activism, through love for others, all stemming from seeking first His kingdom that is marked by not by anger or resentment and partisanship, but compassion and mercy and empathy and respecting the image of God in all people, whether it's Gay Pride Month or some other month proclaiming the truth of the gospel of this King. Friends, the kingdom of God has come and is built not on a system of government or a moral code, but on the holy sovereignty of the eternal truth of Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus' purpose as King was to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life for others, not to annihilate them or have them join some other nationalistic religion. Rather, Jesus came to save a people for himself, to renew the world for that people and to reign over them with true liberty and justice for all who trust in Him forever and ever. May we join Him in this. May we join Him in this. And may we not get sidetracked by what the voices of the world tell us is most urgent, on all sides of whatever aisles there are, but rather to seek first His kingdom, loving Him, following His example of compassionate and merciful sacrifice and servanthood, with a growing desire to see many more brought into the kingdom, where forgiveness and mercy and compassion abound, where true freedom and joy that we're going to celebrate next week, but the truest freedom is freedom in Christ. Freedom and joy, satisfaction and life is found in knowing and being known by by the eternal King. This is who we serve. This is who we yield to. This is who we speak of. This is the way we respond on social media. This is the way we. This is how we talk. This is. This is who we are. This is. This is how what, what, what we do as those who seek first the kingdom of God. We we are not those who would shrink back. We we are those who trust in God fully and we reach out to one another. We reach out to people. We love the people around us and we care for them and we just don't get in arguments with them about stuff that we want to get to their heart. We want to sit at the table with them. We don't want to um, get into a place where, like Luke 12 speaks of, where where Jesus says, we're just worrying about all sorts of stuff. Listen, stop worrying about all sorts of stuff and believe that the King is with us, and the King is ruling and reigning, so we we need not be anxious for anything. And he says, and Dan's going to read this a little later, he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good will to give you what? the kingdom. Amen.